one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. today uh, here recording from beautiful Ghana country in Adelaide, Australia, and pay my respects to the traditional owners of our land, uh, elders past, present, and emerging. And I am here today um, recording Talking Space, episode 1405, with my good friend Mark. And it certainly is time for 1405. I apologize to our listeners and to the people that have provided some content for us from NASA Kennedy Space Center for the delay in putting out the uh, interview that you'll be listening to as part of our show. But I think you'll find it quite interesting. And I, again, appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to you. So, Kat, what have you got? You've mentioned a couple things that uh, I, I find myself being the audience far too often. So I'll, <laughs> I'll be audience again and, and you take it away. Sure. So I just thought before we went into your really fantastic interview um, that you did with the folks at Kennedy Space Center that we would just hit on a couple things that have happened recently that are big news in space. Um, and I think I'll go with the first of which that happened right here uh, down under in Australia, which is that we had a historic launch that took place. It was NASA's first from a fully commercial spaceport. And it was also the first Australia's first commercial space launch with NASA, um, and that happened in the Arnhem Space Center um, in Australia's Northern Territory uh, with Equatorial Launch Australia, and they launched uh, three sounding rockets um, that were um, doing astrophysics studies that can only be conducted from the Southern Hemisphere. As all of our audience knows, there is... Um, uh, lots of different places you can launch from and different launches are better for different orbits. And then when it comes to studying the sun, some places are better than others. Um, so we had these really uh, great launches that happened. The first one took place on, I believe it was the 29th of June, but let me just check that date. Um, I had it up, but we had a couple technical difficulties with my browser. So I've lost, um, uh, I lost that. Uh, date, but I'm going to check and make sure I have the correct time. So the first successful launch took place at 11.59 Australian Central Standard Time on Sunday, the 26th of June. I was actually watching it live and it was really amusing to watch because um, you could tell that the presenter wasn't used to sort of the many delays and holds and possible scrubs that can happen uh, during a launch. Um, so it was really fun just to, to be a part of that and, and watch it um, go. And, and I was just having a, a, a good giggle over sort of the, um, the surprise, the, the webcaster that like, oh, there's another one. Um, and actually quite interestingly, Mark, for, for your um, uh, thing is they actually had to send up a couple weather balloons to check the upper level winds. Um, and and so there was a lot of delays as they would send up weather balloons to check the winds, and then the, the upper level winds were violating the um, the launch parameters. Um, so I was kept going into the living room, and it was really late at night, and I was like changing. My partner was watching something, and I would change it to YouTube to watch it, and then there would be another four or five minute hold. So I'd go back to my room and then come back, and so finally. Um, we got to see it launch. Then I, I stayed on to watch a little bit. My partner went to bed and I very annoyingly woke him up right after he fell asleep, walking the room, singing songs about rockets launching. Um, so he wasn't, he wasn't too happy with me, but it was really fantastic to see. 
Um, and the rocket also um, was recovered, and the, the data from the um, from the payload was recovered, uh, also from within the Northern Territory um, to get that that data. And I'm not sure when the um, the data from that will be uh, launched, but it was really exciting um, for them to get some interesting um, and unique data to. Um, observe the uh, Alpha Centauri A and B constellations. Um, so uh, it was fantastic. The, they launched um, two additional ones after this one, um, and they collected both the first stage of the rocket and their payloads. And um, yeah, so just very exciting to, to sort of to get to watch that uh, historic moment, not only historic for NASA, because it was the first launch anywhere in the world from a fully commercial spaceport, um, but getting to to see that for first commercial launch from from Australia, when we have a kind of an exciting time going on now within the Australian space uh, landscape, we've had a lot of um, great contracts that have been signed recently within Australian space. Fleet Space has signed one with NASA, um, as has Newman Space, looking at some um, in space propulsion methods. Um, so some really exciting stuff happened here, but I just wanted to share with our listeners and encourage you to, to um, go on YouTube. There's some great videos of the launch um, that took place. And um, in fact, uh, NASA even brought in mobile launch net platforms to use from the Space Center, which is very interesting that they, the type of um, infrastructure and architecture that, that NASA um, brought in for this launch. And um, as a result, this has brought you know great attention to that um, Arnhem Space uh, Center, and they are expanding and expect to build more there, including um, some permanent launch areas. Um, so we expect to see more launches and probably more launches with NASA as well um, from Arnhem Space Center. So I just wanted to share that. And I just, uh, a couple weeks after that is when I got a chance to listen to the interview that Mark Ratterman has done with, uh, with our KSC folks down there working on TDRS. And uh, having just heard them speak so much about weather balloons, it was really fascinating to hear to hear your interview, Mark. Well, thanks. And, you know, isn't it typical that uh, part of the launch business is unexpected delays and sometimes scrubs? And did you say at the beginning this was a sounding rocket? Uh, yes. Yes, I believe so. It's a, uh, I don't know if it's sounding, maybe I, it's a suborbital launch rocket, but I, oh. Hello, sorry, I cannot speak. It's a suborbital launch, and I believe it was a sounding rocket. Um, uh, at least that's what I recall from watching the web. And as I said, unfortunately, I had a couple technical difficulties, and I got <laughs> so I just lost everything that I had up. But yes, that's that's interesting. And you know, any any launch is a good launch, and uh, the, one of the things that that I have a greater appreciation for is how complicated the whole business is. And that I was correct. I'm so glad that I didn't misspoke. There's nothing worse than when you say something and you get all the emails and like, ah, you were wrong. Um, so it was a Black Brent 9 sounding rocket. Um, and it was again launched from the Equatorial Launch Alliance um, at their Arnhem Space Center. So yes, I was correct. It was a sounding rocket, which is really fascinating that the, that the sounding rocket could do, you know, this kind of fun science. Recently, I heard uh, one of the NASA podcasts, I forget which one, there's many of them, and I, I invite our listeners to go search around NASA's podcast list because they've got a bunch. But anyway, they were talking about sounding rockets and how different it is. And now I've got the bug to go see a sounding rocket launch, probably from Wallops. That's where a lot of them are. Uh, you know, in the area of the Florida and the East Coast, but like to go up to Wallops and see one. And uh, they're apparently they're once they once they light, they go. They are fast climbers. I remember one they were talking like 20 G acceleration. Uh, they're no slouches and they go up quite high, too, that you think, oh, little rocket. But no, 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 no. Wow, that's really that's really interesting. And I was just looking at the the mention names. I do want to mention first one that the mission that went aloft was the University of Wisconsin Madison's X-ray quantum calorimeter or XQC, and it examined X-rays in the zone of gas and dust between stars known as the interstellar medium. And the second two that were launched in early July 
um, we're looking at the Alpha Centauri, um, which is, you know, really, really exciting, really fantastic. And um, they were called uh, cysteine, so from University of Colorado Boulder, the suborbital imaging spectrograph for transition region irradiance from nearby exoplanet host stars. Again, cysteine. Uh, we love our acronyms <laughs> in space. Yeah. <laughs> and it looked at how ultraviolet light from stars affects the atmosphere of these planets around them, um, including the gases that are thought to be signs of life. So really, um, that was the second mission. And the third mission that was uh, launched last was the UC Boulder mission called the Dual Channel Extreme Ultraviolet Continuum Experience, DEUCE, which looked at... Um, uh, observations using the ultraviolet light spectrum that's not usually used for astronomy. Um, and it was going to help them model stars that are similar and smaller to our own sun, which is, you know, of course, important when we have um, looking for signs of life in exoplanets. So really fascinating missions that were launched on on, on these sounding rockets. Um, and just exciting to, to see, um, you know, the first fully commercial spaceport um, multi-user launch um, happening here in Australia. So, I got to throw something in from, uh, I believe it was 2011. I talked to astronaut Mike Barrett, who was on the STS-133 crew. And I was asking him about the you know future of space flight and astronauts and such as that. And he said, this is the most exciting time to think about the space program, to see what's coming. And at that point, all we could think about in 2011 was the end of the shuttle program. But he was totally serious, and he was he was making a point, which has proven more and more as time goes on, that there's a lot going on. And a, a commercial spaceport, when we're used to, you know, Kennedy Space Center and Vandenberg and you know Ariane launches, there's there's more and more coming. Yeah, when you mentioned before seeing the sounding rockets launch from Wallops, and I've sat on my front porch in Raleigh, North Carolina, and seen those rockets launch. Um, they can still be quite visible from pretty far away. Um, so it's exciting to, to be able to see to see things like that. In fact, the, the sounding rockets that were launched here from the Northern Territory were visible from quite far away. And there were definitely reports of people who got to see them. But um, but yeah, I mean, he was right that there's really exciting things happening in space right now. And the end of shuttle has opened up an exciting, you know, next chapter in, in space exploration, especially when looking on the commercial side, there's so many exciting things that happen. I mean, you know, SpaceX and, you know, now we've got um, Starliner and, and all those, they don't happen when you have a shuttle program because you just can't support a shuttle program and a commercial space program and Artemis. Speaking of exciting, I think you've got something to share with us that uh, you've got some awareness of that I, I can say I didn't miss it, but I really didn't get to focus much on it. So go ahead with that. Sure. So I just wanted to touch on briefly the exciting images that came from the the new Webb Space Telescope. Um, of course, um, there are a lot of really beautiful images, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about Webb's first deep field um, image, which, you know, we're all familiar with the Hubble deep, um, deep field image. And it's, it's amazing, inspiring to look at all of those and, um, and know that each of those, those dots in there is actually a galaxy. And, and for me, it's exciting because when you look at how many galaxies there are, it's, it's, it's a lot of possibilities and it's a lot of things to be out there. There's a lot of, a lot waking. There's a lot waiting to be discovered. Um, so just um, a few weeks ago or just a week ago, they, um, I think it was a few weeks ago now, they released Webb's first deep field um, and it covers a patch of sky. And this is from NASA that is approximately the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length by someone on the ground. And it reveals tiny, um, in that tiny little sliver, it reveals thousands of galaxies and a vast universe. Um, so they year, they used the um, near-infrared camera, and it was able to bring out these structures and extremely distant galaxies, offering the most detailed view of the early universe to date. And again, this is um, just reading directly from NASA's news release here. Um, 
and it was really exciting. Um, so it shows some some galaxy clusters as they appeared 4.6 billion years ago. Um, and that's galaxy cluster SMACS0723. And then you can see more galaxies in front of and behind it. Um, and then there's so much exciting more data to come. We're going to learn more about this galaxy cluster. Um, and then uh, they also use the MIRI image that sort of highlights what colors the dust is. And so can show us that um, these areas of dust, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, when we see those dusty areas and the images that were taken by Hubble and now the images that have been taken um, by um, the Webb Space Telescope, is that these dusty areas are actually the areas of star, star birth. It's where you know stars are born, where stars are created. Um, and it also, these um, images can show us what are the physical and chemical properties that um, can help them identify more, even more galaxies. Um, so this is really exciting. Um, one of my favorite tidbits from this release, from the first image, and, and there's been some really amazing other images um, have been released as well. One of my exciting, one of the things that I found this exciting is that the light from one of these galaxies had traveled for 13.1 billion years before the mirrors on that space telescope captured it. Um, and, you know, that's that's almost the beginning of time, you know, as we know it, at least the beginning of the Big Bang. Um, so to be when, you know, Mark, you were just talking about like, this is an exciting time for space. You know, it's not just an exciting time for launch, it's really an exciting time for science. And um, just to think that we have like an image that can be seen with our eyes, you know, that we can look at and, and study. And then the light that made that image possible traveled 13.1 billion years. I mean, that's just on a, on a scale of time that's, to be honest, too too big for, for us to really comprehend it in any meaningful way. Um, you know, we even sometimes have a hard time comprehending time on, on a scale of centuries, much less the scale of billions and billions of years. Um, so that for me, um, just a very brief touch onto the the web images, um, or as I like to call it, the Jolly Reef Space Telescope, because it launched on Christmas Day. Um, but really fantastic images, and we'll we'll drop a, a link in the show notes um, so that you can see them yourselves if you haven't already. Though I'm sure you have. Um, but I just wanted to just touch on that and say um, that it was really exciting to be able to see these new images. And, and I think some of the best things is they released a series of images that compared um, the Webb Space Telescope images to the Hubble Space Telescope images and just being able to see the, the difference in the detail and the, the clarity of the images is really fantastic. So it just, it sort of makes me excited for like, what's the telescope that's gonna come after Webb? <laughs> because how much better are these images gonna get um, in the future, like what will be the deep field images that our grandchildren are looking at. Um, so I just found it very exciting and just wanted to share a little bit um, about that with our audience. For sure. And that's something that time gives us a bit of an advantage that as time goes on, the scientists, the engineers, the technicians, the people that come up with these concepts to do things that, you know, 20 years ago were impossible. They, they do these phenomenal things that just give us a uh, an opportunity to learn to know and to keep moving forward and not be doing the same thing again and again and again we're advances are are happening we're right at the forefront of what the web is going to do for for astronomy it's a good day with that Mark, tell us a little bit about this interview that we're about to hear from you it is with two meteorologists from Kennedy Space Center, and uh, it's sort of a follow-up, although it goes back a few years. But I was down at Kennedy and saw the tropospheric Doppler radar wind profiler, and I have trouble getting all of that out in the right order. So I may have done it wrong just then. But uh, to me, it's an exciting system because I actually got to see the equipment, and I saw how how pretty it is, how nicely the installation was, how just 
top notch. This this impressed me so much when I saw it a few years back. And and here we're talking to the meteorologists, and they've got several years of actual experience launching rockets and supporting uh, supporting space with this wind profiler, which gives them the winds aloft. Which, along with weather balloons, is something that supports you know, the the safe launch record that our launch providers have. So I think you'll find it interesting. I wish we could have talked longer, but I had a limited amount of time and kind of hit the ground running, as you'll hear as you listen to it. And I just want to mention that, um, you know, here Talking Space hasn't been producing much content. I apologize for that. I wish that all of us had total freedom to call our lives exactly how we want, but we certainly don't, just as all of you that are listening you find speed bumps in your lives that, you know, slow you down and change your course, and we're the same. But our interest and our dedication in the subject matter is still 104%. You know, we're, we're ready to go, and we just need a little bit of luck and a little bit of opportunities for us to be able to, to do the job that we love so much and be able to share these things with you. So we will have more to talk about in the future. And um, I guess I'm kind of introing a discussion and wrapping up the show at the same time. The tropospheric Doppler radar wind profiler supports launches from the Kennedy Space Center and Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. I first saw the tropospheric Doppler radar wind profiler near the shuttle landing facility in November of 2015. This discussion was recorded on May 26, 2022 with two KSC meteorologists, and it was coordinated by NASA's Kennedy Space Center Public Affairs Specialist, Mary McLaughlin. We here at Talking Space appreciate the service Public Affairs Office provides. We would not have this one-of-a-kind interview without the coordination provided by the Public Affairs staff. Thank you. First, you'll hear our guests introduce themselves, and then we go right into a follow-up about operational challenges the tropospheric Doppler radar wind profiler faced during its 2015 checkout and certification process. My question was about the radio frequency interference from the tropospheric Doppler radar wind profiler to distant ham radio operators. During the interview, I learned a few new acronyms. Let's see how many new ones you pick up. Sure. I'm Kathy Rice, and my title, I mean, I'm a meteorologist for uh, NASA and I guess you could call, like we often call me a KSC weather officer. I'm Dr. Christmas Smith, and I'm also a meteorologist for NASA. And I'm Mary McLaughlin, and I'm a public affairs specialist, which means that I deal with all the media uh, for any events, and I cover the uh, Spaceport Integration and Services Directorate. We did have a um, problem where we were bleeding. When we first turned on the system, when we replaced it, we were, we did have a problem with uh, interfering with the ham operator. So if you, we replaced it in 2015. And and when we first, I guess, you know, we must have, we had an old system, you know, if you will. Uh, it was like an experimental one. It was, I called it the vineyard. It looked like chicken wires, if you will. It's like a grid of chicken wire. It kind of looked like, um, or, you know, barbed wire, if you will. Um, but that one was our experimental system. It worked very well, um, but it had, you know, it didn't have the logistical tail you really need to make it operational. But that was the foundation to gather the data to help us understand how good the system really does work, how good using a Doppler radar wind profiler does work. So that was sort of our system that proved the concept. And then in 2015 is when we replaced it. We took the old one down in 2014, went through the process of replacing it and put in the new one. I guess when we shut off for a year, um, that's when the ham operators realized we were bleeding into them. We turned shut off and then we turned it back on and and we uh, interfered with them. So what we did was we actually shifted the frequency um, and brought the power down a bit. And that allowed us to, to function without uh, bleeding into the ham operator's bandwidth, if you will. So, so that's kind of old news now. We've worked, you know, we worked through that and worked past it. Um, and we've been running the radar ever since. We we even um, added another mode that provides better effective vertical resolution. It doesn't quite get um, as good of altitude as the uh, – we, we have one mode we call the SLS mode, meaning the Space Launch System mode, because that's the mode that uh, we've had for years. And then we um, we also created another 
configuration, and it's really just a software configuration file. One of the, the beauties about the radar is you can configure it different ways, and so it's a software configuration file, and, and we change the the uh, the pulse um, that we that we send, and and we were able to achieve better effective vertical resolution, and being able to pick up smaller feet features of wind. And uh, but then we lost some altitude when we did that because again we we when we first ran it we started bleeding in the ham operator so we actually worked with uh, we actually brought down the the power again and actually even had to no- send a notice to the ham operators and asked them to listen and made sure we didn't uh, bleed into them so so now we have two modes uh, for the radar so it depends on what customers choose. Uh, on a daily basis, we keep it in the SLS mode, but we also have the mode we now call the improved effective vertical resolution mm. mode. And so um, I think we lost uh, somebody in this. Okay. So you, one of the other questions you asked is who are the users of the data? And so far, um, of course, NASA is a user. We use it for uh, our, uh, one of our upper-level wind instruments. It's actually primary uh, for the altitude that it covers. Um, for the uh, Artemis One mission, and then also uh, ULA does use the data as well. They use it in com- combination with balloons and to calculate aerodynamic loads, um, and then SpaceX as well um, also uses uh, the the uh, radar. And SpaceX even recently um, went through the uh, went through we went through several months of meetings to cover. Uh, the verification for being able to use it for the crew launches, and and then the next LSP launch will go through that again. LSP was Launch Services Program, who does the science missions for the NASA science missions. Um, they also uh, were involved in that entire process. So um, once we get to our next LSP mission, they'll have a, um, a meeting to uh, verify, you know, and run through that verification board, and 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 it'll likely be approved for those as well, since. All their questions were, they were very involved in that entire process. Um, and so we also, you know, as new users come on the range, there's a lot of benefits to the to the radar, uh, using the radar for upper level winds. Um, you have the radar sitting in one place, so there's balloons can drift way downstream, especially if there's a good jet stream going on on that particular day. Whereas the tropospheric Doppler radar wind profiler is pointing, you know, directly overhead. It's located just to the northeast on the East northeast side of the shuttle landing facility, so it's pretty close to the launch trajectories and doesn't move, you know, like the balloons do. Another advantage is you get the data every five minutes, whereas with the balloon you have to schedule the balloon, you have to wait for the balloon to rise. Um, that takes about an hour to get the full profile, um, so that that's a longer process. And our our customers are one of the n- new advantages that we've learned from our customers using is is that it's actually um, nice to be able to easily watch the trends with the data rolling in every five minutes, and they can actually predict. Let's say they're in a no go; it's easier for them to predict getting when they're going to get back to go by watching the trends because the data is just rolling in every five minutes. It's also uh, been noted as a being a lighter load on the guidance and navigation control um, personnel because not having to if you lose a balloon, uh, you lose say you lose contact with a balloon and you have to plan another one and, and going through that process instead you're just the data is just flowing in every five minutes and there's no uh, need to try to reschedule anything or you know it's just a it's just a continuous flow of data I have a question I did see the displays at the uh, the radar profiler site when I was there uh, almost seven years ago and of course I'm by no means I'm not knowledgeable about weather. I understood the basics of what I was seeing, but it seems like that's a phenomenal amount of data looking at altitudes and wind speed and direction from a fairly low altitude up to high altitude. How easy or difficult is that to look for those trends? It seems like a lot of data to sift through. Well, the you know customers tend to have um, you know software that they've written to handle all that. And so, so the data actually does not overwhelm them because they can just, again, the data flows in They They use their software. That's an automated, you know, thing that they do. And, and then the data displays are already created for them 
and and you know just having gone through that process where we were verifying the use for the crew launches uh, for commercial crew space like you could really see the tools that they use and see that the data actually is is pretty uh once once you can you know put it into your automated software it's 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 pretty simple at that point um, it's a pretty simple process for them and it is a lot of data it's a it's wind data you know so meteorologists can look at it there's we have good displays and and at the 45th weather squadron they have displays that they can look at it and, and watch it coming in trending over time and and the, and the colors change based on the wind speed so they can interpret it uh, using those those displays as well uh, so and and they can compare it you know meteorologists can compare it to what they're seeing in the weather other weather data like where's the jet stream you know what they're expecting on changes and and so they can you know, correlate it with the weather pattern that we're in. Is the 45th Weather Squadron the uh, kind of lead as far as the meteorologists that are using the data? Or I know you described it going, uh, it sounds like, straight to the customer with their own package to provide the uh, the trends to them. But are the 45th Weather Squadron involved too? Um, well, the, the way the process works is... Um, our team, we have a team uh, of uh, our team at the TDRIP site, which is our con- our task contractor. Then we have the data on a daily basis. It just flows directly to the uh, Space Launch Delta 45. Used to be called the 45th Space Wing. Now they're called the Space Launch Delta 45. And it flows to their uh, weather control and display system. And then it goes to an external data server for customers to be able to access but also the forecasters there are able to look at it. So if somebody had questions from a meteorological point of view about the data, that's where, you know, they would talk to their launch weather officer. Now on a launch day, it actually first, uh, the data first flows over to our quality controller, who is um, the, again, that's the Eastern range over at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station balloon facility. It flows there. They actually are looking at, the radar signal data, and they make they're fil- they filter it to make sure it's it's pointing to the right signal. So they actually go through a quality control process there. When they're com- they do that every five minutes, every time the data comes in, they do a quick quality control of the data, and then they release that data. It comes back to our system, and then it gets converted into wind information, and then goes again back over to the Space Launch Delta Forty Five uh, to their weather control and display system which then puts it on the external data server for the customer to access. And the meteorologist can, again, see that data, and then the customer can ask questions. So, for example, if you're going through a launch countdown, if they see something unusual, we can, uh, you know, they can contact the launch weather officer who's a meteorologist who has expertise and can look at the data and and let them know um, what, you know, what's going on. Is there a certain amount of, having a feel for where a trend is going? Oh, sure. Um, you know, you, that that was exactly what we were talking to SpaceX about. Um, they had a launch last week where they were watching the wind trends, and, and I asked them questions sometimes after a launch just to get some feedback on the use of the tropospheric Doppler radar wind profiler, and they were just explaining to me how it was really easy to watch the trend to see, you know, that the upper-level winds um, in relation to their aerodynamic loads on the vehicle, how all that was just improving through the countdown. And and so, yes, it, that's one of the nice things about the T-Drip, getting that data every five minutes. You can really watch the trends, which is a little more challenging with weather balloons because they take time to rise. And, and then there's spatial differences, you know, where the balloon goes downstream and, and um, might not pick up. In fact, we have differences from the T-drip to the balloon data and study those cases. And it's not that either of them were incorrect. It's just that between the time difference and the spatial difference, that the T-drip is just picking up on a feature sooner than the balloon would, would indicate. You're using an acronym, acronym I think I followed, TDRIS? Oh, we're calling it T-DRIP, a tropospheric Doppler radar wind profiler. That's what we oh, call our okay. our radar. So the acronym is the T-DRIP. <laughs> Some people have, have called it affectionately the teardrop, <laughs> but it's uh, we call it the T-DRIP, yes. Tropospheric Doppler radar wind profiler. 
I, I live in a world of acronyms too, and sometimes the, the the sound doesn't make sense with how it's actually put together in letters. So thank you. I right, do, and sorry about the acronyms. It's oh, easy to fall no. back into that. <laughs> no, not a bit. We we can teach our listeners a new acronym that they can impress their friends with. So I have a question. <laughs> if if you what would go wrong if you had bad data or data was missing and a launch occurred? We don't launch with if there's not good data in the team. Um, the air, you know, the guidance, navigation, and control officers would see that. And if they didn't have good data um, and they weren't clear on what their aerodynamic loads were, then you know it could hold up a rocket launch. Um, what they can do um, is look at the latest data, and then they can have if they if they're missing data, they can they have statistical. Some customers run these statistical analyses and they can envelope, you know, what all the possibilities that could happen between now and launch based on historical data. And and then they can, you know, if they're falling within that envelope, it's possible they could get comfortable to launch. It would depend on when you lost the data, how much time had gone by, you know, um, um, but but we haven't run into that a lot. Um, so, but with balloons, we run into it a little bit more often because the data expires at a certain time. And then if you can't get another balloon up, let's say a big thunderstorm rolled over uh, the balloon facility. And even though they have a robot that launches balloons, still, you're, you know, if you send a balloon up in a thunderstorm, you're not going to get the data. And it's possible for that thunderstorm to move out. But yet, and, and you could be go for, you know, the launch pad weather, um, but you still don't have your balloon data. And that's happened to us in the past. Um, so having the T-drip as another instrument is good because it provides, you know, that five min- every five minutes. And so when you pick up after a thunderstorm rolls through, you can start getting that data quicker as well. So lightning can affect the T-drip. Um, rain does not because it's a low enough frequency that rain doesn't affect it. It can bring in lots of data during rain. Um, but if lightning is right over the radar, and it pretty much has to be right over the radar. It, we've seen, we've actually watched the cases occur where the lightning rolls through. Once that lightning moves out, um, the data, you know, is available again. So usually, by the time the weather clears, the launch pad and everything, the, the, you know, there's been enough time for the team to start recalculating those aerodynamic loads again. But yeah, without the upper level wind data, that is the data that is typically mandatory for a customer for launch. So without upper level winds, we're not going to launch that rocket. So they have to have recent enough data to, to that their analysis shows that they're going to be able to launch that day based on their analysis. But but if there's no data at all, then, then they would not launch the rocket. And that's really the one piece of weather information that is mandatory for launch is upper level wind data. Okay. Um, I think we covered what type of weather specialist can interpret the data. I mean, I I, it's, I talked about the meteorologists at the 45th, then also the engineers that receive the data. They interpret, you know, what uh, if they have any questions about it, they would ask the weather squadron launch weather officer, um, you know, if, if they have any questions about the, the weather data, something that looked unusual. Um, you asked about the reliability system. It's been very reliable. When we have it staffed, uh, we've had, um, we've, we've, we've pretty much been running 100% every month on when the, the system is manned and staffed. So we always recommend it being manned or staffed during launch countdown um, because that's when it's the most reliable. Once in a while, um, if we had a system lockup or something, it's typically when someone's not there to be monitoring, monitoring the system. Um, those lockups have mostly been related to communication outages. And so because of that, we've done two significant communication upgrades in the past two years uh, to the system. And um, so now we used to be on a, a copper modem line, and, and now we're using fiber and much more reliable communication systems that's, that's actually monitored all the time. So, so um, it's a very reliable system in that way. And we have a, it has, a, has 20 sectors, so even if you lost a whole sector of the radar, you could still get reliable upper-level wind data. We haven't lost any sectors, but even if you did... Um, it's it's got a lot of redundancy. Um, you said, asked if you're happy with the system now, as far as the resources available. I I think we're we're very happy with it. Um, if we weren't, we wouldn't recommend it. So when new customers come on to the range, we always provide all the information about the tropospheric Doppler radar wind profiler, so 
so they understand the capability it has and how they could use it. We provide them all the operational acceptance tests so that they see all the data and the analyses. And, and there's been a lot of um, a lot of really good information and papers written by our Marshall Space Flight Center Natural Environments group that that use the data for the Artemis launches. They've shared that information in research papers as well. So we provide all that information and customers can make a determination on if they want to use it uh, for launch. The benefits are, you know, they, they get the data every five minutes, can save money by not launching uh, balloons and not having to schedule other balloons. It's possible uh, that they don't need those, um, depending on how they do their analysis. So, um, yeah, we're we're very happy with the system, and it's been something um, that you know has been we've been working on for since 1990 when we got the original radar, and the benefits were really noticed with the old radar, and that's why there was, we did a big push um, to use this for you know upper level winds um, in the future, and that's why we went and put the new justified putting the new radar in. Upper level winds are significant for for rockets, you know, especially when they hit that max Q level. Um, so, so that the importance of having good upper level wind data, good reliable upper level wind data was definitely recognized by my predecessors in this office, and that's why we have the new radar we have now. Do your customers pay for the uh, data that comes to them, or is that part of what? Uh, KSC provides as a multi-user spaceport. Um, we they, we don't charge them for the operations and maintenance of the system. NASA pays for that. Um, we do charge if uh, if it's a commercial launch or a non-government launch. Um, I should say um, we ask them to pay the man hours for our our contractors when they're there for the countdown. And then they, you know, I don't know what they pay the uh, the Space Launch Delta to be able to access the external data server, but they work with the Space Launch Delta through their documentation and agreements uh, to be able to get access to the external data server to access the data. So, um, you know, there is a, a cost, you know, to access the data on that side. And then there's uh, the cost for the quality controller um, that the Space Forces has quality controlling the data and then the cost for our team here, um, although if it's a government launch, then NASA's, NASA's covering those, but uh, commercial, uh, purely commercial launches, I don't mean commercial crew because that would be considered government, but um, for their other commercial launches, they would pay for our man hours. I know we're getting close on time. Um, I had a general question about the overall network of weather sensors, and I'm sure it's far bigger than than anything that I can imagine, but could you describe uh, what I suppose that network is like, uh, how widespread it is? Yes, uh, yeah, so they, well, we, um, across the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station and Kennedy Space Center, there's a suite, if you will, a large suite of weather sensors. Um, we have wind towers that are um, instrumented at multiple levels that are spread across the range. We also have uh, field mills, which detect the electrostatic potential of the atmosphere. Um, and by detecting at the surface and inferring what's happening aloft, and those are used for the evaluation of lightning launch criteria. We have over 30 of those spread across the range. Um, there's um, several, actually, uh, five Doppler radar wind profilers that are 915 megahertz that cover Altitudes lower than our tropospheric Doppler weather uh, radar wind profiler, covering more the boundary layer, um, if you will. And so those are are also uh, spread across the range. Um, so there's a, a large suite of, of weather instrumentation, um, and um, that's all used by the 45th Weather Squadron uh, when we get into launch countdowns, but also for ground operations. Um, for example, if we're doing something with hazardous fuel, um, they look at those multiple you know, those instruments on the towers and they're at multiple levels. So you can see if you have an inversion that would, if you happen to have a spill, it would cap, you know, the, 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 the fumes um, rather than letting them disperse. You can think of that sort of like how smog affects, say, like Los Angeles or something. It's when you get that good inversion set up and you can see if you have an inversion and then you would not initiate that operation if it looked like a hazardous situation. So, so the weather data is used for a lot of different things. 
ground operations as well. When you go to stack a rocket, you don't want a lot of wind. So having all that wind information, all that weather data helps with all these different operations to you know provide what's currently occurring, and then it helps you in your forecast as well. So um, all used by the 45th Weather Squadron to provide the operational weather support. It sounds like the weather program there is a 24-hour-a-day operation. Am I right? That's correct. Um, so the weather uh, squadron does the operational weather here at the Kennedy Space Center Weather Office. We manage our and we do a lot of integration of weather. We manage uh, weather projects that help improve tools that they have that they use, and also things like our 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 Doppler weather radar wind profiler that we've been talking about, and um, and many other trend like moves to the future. We try to uh, always look ahead and see what, how we can improve weather support instrumentation or tools um, that and the weather squadron uses tools that we've created with our applied meteorology unit which we run out of this office um, so yeah there, there's a, it's a, like an integrated team here if you will with the weather squadron providing that 24-7 operational weather support that is so impressive I I, I work on uh, let's just say simple, basic weather observation systems on airports, and uh, and to hear how widespread your system is, and the area that you're covering, and the the, the fine detail that you're looking for, um, and how important it is not just for launches, but for the maintenance and for the uh, the work getting a rocket ready. Um, I I don't think that I have previously realized and thought about how important your program is for the work that goes on there. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's amazing how much you can use all this weather data for, you know, we can flow it into our uh, models that give us, you know, dispersion information. So we know if we did have a spill where the, you know, where we have to make sure people are, are evacuated or if we're doing some kind of hazardous fuel ops, we can keep people informed that, could be in an area that would need to be evacuated. Yeah, it's used uh, quite a bit, you know, and as a launch weather officer, I was always watching the data when we were trying to roll a rocket out or stack a rocket. I worked the space shuttle program. The weather was always one of the first calls that they would make before they'd start an operation. They'd get that weather forecast, make sure they're not violating any constraints, not going to violate any during the time of the operation. It's a, it's a weather it affects everything. Anything, anytime you start working outside or, or working with hazardous fuels, it becomes a, a major factor. Kristen, do you want to say anything about the uh, lap and the um, weather archives? Um, sure. Uh, so we have the, what we call the KSU weather data archive, and that is a publicly accessible website that houses all of the weather data that Kathy was describing in answering your last question, um, all the observations that are made from those various instruments across the eastern range or uh, the spaceport. It's all available to those inside and outside of NASA. So you can check out our archive and um, dig into rainfall data and lightning data, and all the other types of weather data that we observe out on the the range. Um, the the lightning advisory panel that Kathy just mentioned, we also call it the LAP LAP. Um, that's a group that of world um, renowned lightning scientists. Um, and their function is to develop and modify our current set of lightning launch commit criteria, or LLCC. And those rules are what are evaluated by the launch weather officers on the day of a launch to make sure that a vehicle, when it's ascending um, from the launch pad, uh, that it does not intercept natural lightning or trigger um, what we call rocket-triggered lightning um, while it's ascending. Uh, Kristen, I have another question that um, hopefully I can make sense. Um, mm-hmm. Does the wind profiler increase your 
the scientific knowledge of just thunderstorms and hurricanes, this was mentioned in an article that I saw online that Mary sent me. Uh, that hurricanes and storms were mentioned. Does it add to knowledge and understanding of them? Of course, you don't want to have a hurricane go over the space center, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there we do um, try to keep the weather instrumentation up during um, severe events like hurricanes. And there was, um, I'm trying to remember, Kathy, I want to say it was Marshall Space Flight Center, maybe, and KSC that had done an analysis back after Hurricane Matthew or Hurricane Irma, I want to say, and they were looking at the um, the upper-level winds that were observed by the profiler while it was operating. So, I mean, it definitely, having the, the instrumentation up during those events, it, it does um, give you some more insight into what's going on above you at that time. I always uh, express that at different hurricane conferences and when we go to the Interdepartmental Hurricane Conference, or I always make sure they know that we keep it running during storm events. So if anybody wants to look at the data, it's on our archive. They can they can do that. Um, so it's, it's, it is available for that and could be used. Well, that's just one of those things that nobody but the government could do because you provide something that people don't necessarily know that they want until they realize the quality of the data that you've got and somebody becomes aware of it. So thanks, Kat, for I'm glad we got the opportunity to talk because it wasn't expected on either of our parts, but it sure worked out nice. It sure did. And and, um, I echo that, you know, sentiment that you said, Mark, that it's just uh, we're all so passionate about this. And I think, you know, we're just one of those um, times of life for some of our people you just hit those speed bumps that you spoke about mark and um so we're working together to make that work and then i just want to say thank you to all of our listeners for your patience probably your patience listening through uh me bumbling a bit uh through the first bit of this episode just um you know just like launches sometimes i felt a bit like the starliner launch <laughs> just software gasket doesn't open something's going wrong um, but I, it's just my absolute pleasure to be able to bring you a little slice of Australian space news and, and to be on the show. And, and we are certainly so grateful, uh, especially to our contacts, um, you know, at NASA. Um, we've had some really great conversations with, with people at many different centers. I was just thinking of a great interview I had years ago with um, Noah Petra, who was working on the some of the lunar science there at NASA. And so it's just... Uh, it's just a pleasure to be able to bring this to you. And so we appreciate all of our listeners uh, hanging out with us and staying with us through through the years, um, sometimes through some rocky roads, but very happy to have it. And Mark, um, thanks thanks for making this little, this little episode happen. Thank you, Kat. Thank you, listeners. And uh, keep your ear to the ground. We got Artemis coming up. There's a lot happening, and we want you to be there with us.